Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I remember the day I paid off my student loans, but did I use the extra cash per month for something fun? No, because by the time I paid off the loans, I had a family and all the costs associated with kids. Now, if I could rewind, I'd probably go on a dream vacation. Today, where we live, what do you want to do with the money you'll have once your student loans are paid off? At least 43 million Americans are eligible for President Biden's student loan forgiveness program that would wipe out $10,000 or $20,000 of debt based on their income. We want to hear from you. If you're eligible for loan forgiveness or not, how much does student loan debt take from your monthly budget? What questions do you have about managing your personal finances with or without student debt? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest on Zoom is Kristen Myers, Editor-in-Chief of The Balance. It's a personal finance website that helps people with their money questions. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on personal finances and student loan debt, but I'd love to find out what your student loan story was, Kristen. (laughs) I love talking about my student loan story. Uh, I believe transparency is honestly the best thing. So I went to both undergrad and graduate school, and I still actually have um, about less than 20,000 left. So I wish I was uh, eligible for some of the student debt forgiveness, but um, I actually paid off my undergraduate student loans back in about 2016. So, and that felt like such a huge weight off of my shoulders. I remember paying that last bill. It was a couple thousand dollars and I practically closed my eyes as I pressed submit (laughs) to to pay it off. It is a good feeling uh, for those who are able to pay off uh, their student loan debt. I like to think back to when I was uh, in undergrad and, you know, going to a private liberal arts uh, college, you know, it was expensive back then, but it was like maybe, you know, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year. Now we're looking at, you know, these institutions charging mm-hmm. 60,000 plus undergrad per year. No wonder people have this ridiculous amount of debt if, if they don't, you know, have the savings to pull on uh, to pay for, for school. And I think people lose track of that. Uh, I was one of those of those kids uh, when I went to school. Uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. The tuition was around fifty thousand dollars a year, um, and my parents also had my younger brother, who's only a year younger than me, also to really help get through college. And the only way that we were able to afford it, honestly, was taking out loans. And for my parents to do some things I will probably say I wouldn't necessarily recommend most parents do um, to help their children get through college by pulling on savings and even retirement to really help pay for it. And I think that's a piece that's really lost from this student loan story. I mean, we have to realize that college tuition has exploded just in the last 40 years. It's up about 170 percent. 
and wages are not up at that same amount. So gone are really the days where you could, you know, work at the library or work at your, you know, local restaurant and really pay your way through college. So when you think about uh, after you got your degree and you got your your first job, I know you've had a long journalism career, and you know my first journalism job. I mean, I was <laughs> I was getting paid, you know, not a lot of money, as as you know, right? When you're first starting out, and so it is really challenging when you're on your own. You got to pay that student loan debt. You've got your own place to rent. You've got to pay other bills. Uh, maybe it's a car, obviously a food, and uh, you know utilities. And so some of the, the decisions that you had to make those first few years working, Kristen, uh, you know, to make ends meet. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't do it all. I, I couldn't. And keep in mind that when I started paying my undergraduate loans, it was after I went to grad school because they were paused while I was continuing my higher education. So once I graduated, I didn't just have my undergraduate loans that I had to pay. I had my graduate school loans that I also had to pay. Uh, thankfully for me, I actually went to graduate school abroad and college there is far less expensive. And so my full student loan picture wasn't as bad or as daunting, I'll, I'll say, as some other people that I know, you know, some members of my family or some of my friends that also went to graduate school that paid an, another $100,000, $200,000 to get that graduate degree. And frankly, when I started paying off my student loans, I made the decision, again, I would not do this again if I could do it all over again. But at the time I was you know, 25, I didn't really have as much financial literacy. Um, I actually decided not to contribute to my 401k. And now I, I kick myself, honestly, all the time that I really paused contributing financially to my future and to my retirement in service of paying off those loans. We're definitely going to talk more about the importance of uh, financial literacy. Again, uh, my guest, Kristen Myers, editor-in-chief of The Balance, a personal finance website, as we talk about student loan debt, also this new program that the Biden administration rolled out, a loan forgiveness. We want to hear your student loan story. You can join us, 888-720-9677. Are you eligible for loan forgiveness? And if so, you know, have you been thinking about what you're going to do with some of that extra cash that you'll have? Have up per month. Again, we're at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, we got a, a tweet from John the other day when we were talking about the loan forgiveness program. Kristen, uh, John wrote, loan forgiveness is half a solution. It didn't address the abuses like predatory lending and overpriced colleges. It helped the abused while still making them responsible for a loan they signed for. The solution reduced the interest and put limits on the amount loaned. I'm wondering if you can respond uh, to his comment. Um, he's definitely right. I mean, I've said this before, but if we're looking at how we finance higher education, student debt forgiveness is not the end of that journey. It really is just the first step. As I mentioned, we're living in a world right now or in a country right now where people feel compelled in order to break out of generational poverty, for example, um, or to be able to earn a, a life-sustaining wage, they feel that they have to go to college. And I mean, the statistics are true. People with college degrees do earn more over their lifetime than someone without. So they're forced into this really hard and difficult situation, which is, okay, if I want to have a good job one day that's going to be able to pay to support myself and my family, especially as everything is more expensive right now, right? They say, okay, I have to go to college. 
But college, as I mentioned, when I went to school uh, well over a decade ago, was around $50,000 a year. And those costs have even gone up even more. So who can pay that full price of tuition completely without a student loan? It's someone who is already wealthy. So for most Americans, it means that they have to take out a student loan at some at the interest rates that the, that, uh, the administration has essentially set. If it's a federal loan, they're lucky. So many people, unfortunately, can't get enough federal loans to cover their tuition and they have to go uh, to get a, to a private lender. They're not actually eligible for some of this debt forgiveness that we're seeing right now. And those interest rates are, were in excess of 10, 12, 14 percent or even higher. So it is a very difficult situation to be in. And as I mentioned, yeah, student debt forgiveness cannot be this, the end of this journey. It really has to be a start. We have to really rethink how much college should cost. Should it cost $70,000 a year to get an education? Uh, knowing that you're going to essentially hamper someone once they graduate, because will they be able to get the same the salary that they need mm -hmm. to pay that off? Right now, we're seeing that the answer, frankly, is no. So we do have to do a lot more about financing education, but also helping people pay for that education once they graduate. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so how do we begin to have this conversation? So we know the system needs to be reformed. I mean, this it's, it's not sustainable when we think about how much uh, per year a student is paying uh, for a college education. Um, you know, if again, they don't come from a family of means who can pay it for them. And so how can someone start to think about long-term goals and financial planning when they've got all this debt that they also need to worry about, Kristen? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, and and I would hope that for people that are listening right now, that they that hopefully that they don't take this the same kind of methods that I was taking, which was almost an all or nothing game. I very much viewed it as I could pay off my student loans or I could do other things, right? And in reality, looking back, I actually probably could have paid my student loan and also contributed to a 401k and also put some more money into savings. The problem was, was that I didn't really have the, the knowledge or the skill set really to sit down with my finances and to make a budget and to talk through some of the dollars and the cents. What was I giving up if I paid less on that student loan? But what would I have gotten on the other side by the interest um, or the returns, I'll say, actually, that I would have gotten on the other side if I had invested some of that money instead? Um, I'm, I'm happy to see now, I think that, you know, more than 10 years later that people are approaching financial literacy a little bit differently. I think that a lot more people, especially younger people are a lot more willing and interested in investing. Um, but I really think that that's what you need to do. Even if you're not someone who has a lot of financial literacy or a knowledge of, of personal finance, before you make your paying off your student loans or your finances a zero sum game, you really need to sit down with your money um, and talk to yourself about what your financial goals are. And then you can start to play around with how much you can actually afford to pay in one area and how much you might be able to afford to, to divert that money elsewhere. 
And often in, in these conversations with student loan debt, the focus is on young borrowers, people right out of, of college or grad school. But, you know, borrowers in this country that hold student loan debt, they come from many different di uh, demographics. We can't forget, you know, the older adults or maybe even people who took out loans so that they could uh, go to a vocational or trade school, Kristen. And so thinking about where people are in their lives and, and how to make that money work for them. I wonder if you can say, you know, tell us more about how you were able to make uh, you know your money work for you you know in those early parts of your career yeah that's such a good point um because we do think that student you know loan borrowers or someone with student loan debt must be between the ages of what 22 and 40 right but the reality is that for many americans it actually takes several decades to pay off their student loans um i think President Obama had said that he was in his 40s. It wasn't until he was in his 40s. Um, and even after he took the White House that he actually was able to pay off his student loans. So that should really just let everyone know how much student loan debt is really hanging over them and for how long. And we also can't forget that there's plenty of parents and grandparents that decided to be co-signers of their children's loans. And when their children are unable to make ends meet or if they go through something like the Great Recession, and they see their salaries completely dwindle or they lose their jobs, they're also on the hook for that student loan. Um, but for myself, while I did divert all my funds to my student loans, I really tried to pay my undergraduate loans off as quickly as I possibly could. Um, and then I decided to start doing some of the other things like investing. Um, but as I said, I would have made more uh, in the returns on my investments than I would have been paying in the interest on that student loan. And so that's what I mean when I tell people to really sit with the money that they have and how well they might be able to do with a, a, perhaps a different scenario. I mean, historical returns in the market are 10%. My student loan interest was about 7%. So I would have actually made more money if I diverted those those uh, the money that I was really using to pay off that loan as quickly as possible um, to my investments instead. And I probably didn't need to spend as much as I did. Um, I, I could have probably just decided to extend out the time that it was going to take me to pay off that student loan debt, because in reality, I would have had more money than if I hadn't made that choice. You're hearing Kristen Myers, Editor-in-Chief of The Balance, a personal finance website, as we talk about student loan debt and life after student loan debt. Are you among the 43 million Americans eligible for President Biden's loan forgiveness program? Uh, maybe you're someone who was eligible for the public uh, service uh, loan forgiveness uh, program and, uh, and now have some extra cash uh, now that you know those loans are paid off or will be paid off. How are you thinking about using uh, that discretionary income? You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at where we live. Uh, when we think about making payments on um, certain uh, bills that we have, uh, you know, the way that people should uh, maybe prioritize. So say the student loan debt's taken care of. So what's the next thing they need to tackle, uh, Kristen, before they even think about investing? Right. So if they, in terms of if they have their student debt canceled or just right. in, if you want to pay off your student loans? Um, for those who maybe ha have had it canceled or have some more um, income uh, now that they don't have to worry about the student loan debt. So what's next for them? Right. Well, I actually would say whether you had it canceled or not, the first thing that you need to do is really make sure to sit down with your budget. If you don't have one, because so many people don't, you need to start making one. But particularly for those people that have their student debt canceled, 
we do see that borrowers, they pay on average about $470. So let's just say about $500 they pay a month in their student loans. And what I would hate to see is that they have their student debt canceled and now they have just 500 extra dollars sitting in their bank account. And what happens sometimes when you don't have a plan for money, right? It, it makes a plan for itself. And that's money that ends up going towards a vacation or a pair of shoes or going out with your friends, which is fine. I, I don't I don't believe that people should only spend their money on, you know, they, they can't spend their money on going out and having fun. I don't necessarily believe in just austerity it's in it of itself, but you should make a plan for that money. If you want to use that money because you haven't been able to see your friends or your family for so long because you have been struggling, then that's totally fine. But if you have other financial goals, whether that's buying a car, or buying a house, or maybe starting to invest, you really need to make sit down with yourself and decide what those financial goals for yourself are. And then give all of the money that you have coming in, including that extra $500, give it a job and, and, and tell that money what it should be doing. You know, maybe that $200 of that 500 is, you know, the job is to go out and, and to have fun with your friends. Maybe another $200 of that 500 has the job of being invested. Maybe the last 100 of that 500 has the job of going towards your savings to really increase your emergency savings. But you need to make a plan for it. Uh, because if you don't, then it's just going to make a plan for itself. And, and usually that doesn't end up well. Again, you can join us as we talk about financial planning, especially with student loan forgiveness programs, um, helping um, 43 million Americans have some of that debt wiped out. My guest, Kristen Myers, editor-in-chief of The Balance, a personal finance website. What questions do you have about managing your money? Is it possible for you to pay off your student debt? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. Your love gives me such a thrill, but your love won't pay my bills. I want money. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The federal government's pandemic moratorium lowered the number of people defaulting on their student loans, but they still have balances to pay. Data from New York Times finds 7.5 million Americans have student loan balances the same or higher than one year prior, and that federal pause ends at the end of the year. As far as who would benefit the most from the president's loan forgiveness program, the Times highlighted Wharton Business School's independent analysis showing households earning between $51,000 and $82,000 a year would see the most relief. Does that include you? If so, what will you do with any extra cash you may have once your student loan debt goes down or is paid off? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Mark shared on Facebook that he had about $60,000 forgiven through the Public Safety Loan Forgiveness Program. And within six months, he bought a house. Congrats, Mark. We're talking about personal finances with my guests on Zoom, Kristen Myers, Editor-in-Chief of The Balance, a personal finance website that helps people with their money questions. Um, I wanted to take a, a quick call now. Chris is calling in from Weathersfield. Chris, what did you want to share? Chris, can you hear us? Doesn't look like uh, Chris is there anymore. Uh, Kristen, I'll go to you when we talk about the parameters for this uh, loan forgiveness and, and people saying maybe it didn't go far enough. I mean, what's your take on it? Yeah, we've heard so many people say that um, primarily because of those um, income caps, right? Well, actually, it was twofold. One, because of the income caps, but also because it was only forgiving up to $20,000. And that's only if you received a Pell Grant. Um, so for many Americans, only up to $10,000. But as you and I were just you know, discussing a little bit earlier, a lot of people were not going to college for only $10,000. You know, they were paying three times that just for one year of university. Um, and so for some, as I've seen on social media, they say, hey, this $10,000 or $20,000 is honestly just a drop in the bucket. And then there's the folks that are actually above that income threshold where they were taking on such high student loans because they're trying to get out of, as I mentioned, this, this cycle of poverty in their families. And if you are someone who comes from a lower income family, but maybe now is earning six figures, unfortunately, they're still in a lot of ways struggling. They have to help pay for their family um, and, and help them really deal with their financial situations. They're trying to also move forward and do things like buy a house. And they're probably living in cities like San Francisco or New York City, where $125,000 or more might not go as far as it would in another state or in another city. And so I've been hearing a lot from, from both of those people, and I definitely can understand some of that pain. Um, and for those people, yeah, they are still going to struggle going forward, especially as we see home prices uh, jumping, we see rent jumping, everything is increasing. And so for those big people that are earning $126,000 or more, um, I think this really does sting. Uh, Tony uh, shared a, a tweet, a direct message with me on Twitter. Uh, he wrote, the student loan debt forgiveness will be a huge help to me and my family. It'll raise about 16000 for federal loans. And with the extra income from that, I can pay down private loans. Bah! But at age 38, I hope to be debt-free by 40. Uh, good luck to you, Tony. It looks like you're almost there. Uh, again, interesting to hear you know, that some people will have help from some federal loans, but they still have you know, other uh, um, private loans to pay off, Kristen. And so many people do. Um, again, 
a lot of people were unable to finance their college education through just federal loans. And this debt forgiveness is only for those students that have that federal loan. It does not qualify uh, for those Americans that had to take out private loans. And, and keep in mind, again, over the last 10 years, what have we seen? Only a couple years ago did we see salaries um, or some sort of complete recovery after the Great Recession really happened. So people were still, especially if they took on those student loans and graduated within the last 10 or 15 years, they have really been given some financial shocks and have only just now started to be able to recover. And so a lot of them do have debt from taking out student loans from a private lender, but a lot of them have also accrued some debt just in order to live life. Because again, this federal student loan debt is a debt that people have to pay, right? And so as we were discussing earlier, some folks have made some really tough decisions about how they're going to pay their student loan debt and how they're going to live. And I think there are more people uh, than we care to think about that are struggling under other kinds of debt. And as we've seen over the last two years, just as we've had this you know, federal student loan repayment pause, people have been able to really improve their financial futures. They've been able to go out and buy a home. They've been able to buy a car to get to work. They've been able to increase their emergency savings. They didn't go out and you know spend the money or, or just blow it on frivolous things. They really did everything they could to really shore up their financial uh, safety, safety nets and their financial futures. And that is, I think, one of the greatest things, because if every household in the United States is financially strong, then the United States economy is going to be financially strong. I wanted to get another perspective on this conversation. With us on Zoom is Tom Martin, Wealth Management Certified Professional and Financial Planner at Vaylark Financial Services. That's in Hartford, and his services are offered through Independent Financial Group, LLC. Vaylark and IFG are not affiliated. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. So what are you hearing from your clients since the, the latest uh, loan forgiveness uh, was announced by President Biden? Yeah. So anytime they make changes with student loan legislation, this stuff is gets very exciting. Everyone wants to know whether this applies to them. And for many borrowers, you know, it will. Um, I spent a good amount of time taking a look at um, the uh, Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness program. And I will expand uh, on uh, some of the definitions of it. It will actually apply to a lot of borrowers, not just Pell Grant recipients, um, up to $10,000 for borrowers with incomes under $125,000 for uh, single individuals and uh, $250,000 for married couples. And for those with um, that who were awarded the uh, Pell Grant, um, they can get up to $20,000 with the same income threshold. Um, so it's it's a lot broader of a forgiveness program. So everyone is wondering, you know, does this apply to me? And when we think about those who have, maybe they started with federal loans, Tom, and because of the interest rates that Kristen had mentioned, they then consolidated into private loans. Now what happens? Because this doesn't appear, you know, doesn't uh, afford to them the same benefit that others are getting if they still kept it with, with the federal loan. Yeah. So I see this a lot in working with uh, clients too. You'll see this a lot with um, borrowers that have six figures of student loans. A lot of these are professionals that are in the medical profession, doctors, uh, attorneys um, mm -hmm. that are possibly trying to consider whether they should, should switch from a public interest career to a higher paying career in the private sector. Um, so 
if they're not going to be eligible for this um, public service loan forgiveness. And, you know, a lot of people have kind of given up on on it. It is a long term um, investment into the, into the system. You know, we have to kind of weigh our um, our options here and see whether we can qualify for um, or whether it's beneficial to pursue the uh, private loan route. I understand when you're working with uh, clients that have a lot of, of student loan debt. Can you give us an example, especially, of, of, you know, I think there's one case. So you were helping someone who graduated from Quinnipiac and it was uh, yeah. through uh, graduate uh, degree loans. What happened there? So the, the biggest issue that families have today is one, they're late preparers. So they don't put a lot of time and effort into kind of searching colleges. They're looking at the sophomore, junior, senior year. Um, and, and by then it's like you were already arrived. So in my situation and why I actually started to advise on, on student loans and then eventually get into college was I had this, uh, this one um, uh, parent that reached out to me. They read some of my articles on, on student loan and they were concerned about their daughter their daughter went to Quinnipiac University, and by all means, she had a wonderful college experience there. Um, beautiful school, beautiful campus, very local. Um, but you know, this is a situation where the family went to a school that was the wrong kind of college for them, and their financial aid family type is what I like to call them. So, you know, sixty-five thousand dollars a year over the course of four years, you know. We're talking about uh, student loans of you know north of two hundred twenty thousand dollars. So, um, and with the thing about federal student loans is we only get twenty seven thousand dollars of federal student loans for all four years of college. The rest has to come out some other way, and most of the time it is going to be private student loans. Now her interest rate was fourteen point five nine percent, and it was very hard for us to try to figure a way to refinance those loans down to a nine percent interest rate, which we were able to do it, but. Still, at the end of the day, she still owes $225,000 for a undergraduate degree, a bachelor's degree in marketing, making $65,000 a year. She will never pay out from, she'll never get out of those uh, student loans. Um, so she's living at home and just trying to live her best life. But her student loan payments, if we take a look at student loans, if you owe $225,000, a simple math for repayment is just take 10% of that. So $2,250 a month, roughly, is what she's looking at for a repayment. Um, and she's only making like 2000 biweekly. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a lot of money there to kind of live her greatest life. Yeah, th that can be really crippling when you're paying and you just can't get under, you know, get out from under this debt. And it, it again, speaks to the what we talked about earlier uh, about, um, you know, reforming the system, you know, what right now, you know, way higher ed works, you know, if you come from a family of means, you know, their kids can go to the expense of private institutions, everyone else is told, well, because based on your family, maybe you should go to state school or community college. I mean, that doesn't sound like a great solution here. Yeah, so I think that families are going to have to take a look at college a lot differently going into the future, especially if something dramatically does not change um, with the affordability of college. You're going to eventually have families that can only afford um, to go to brick and mortar colleges where you know they make a lot of money because uh, these colleges are a business. You know, I know for a lot, a lot of them they're non for profits, but they're they're a business and they're looking for people that want to pay and pay full price. Um, so we're going to have the brick and mortar schools. And now since COVID, a lot of people are going to be more interested and open to the idea of possibly going to college online for 
$8,000 a year. Hmm. Kristen, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, when I was listening to that story, I'm not going to lie. I'm glad I was muted because I swore <laughs> uh, just listening to that. And there's so many people out here that are in that type of situation. They're earning $60,000, $70,000, which I, I want to just remind everyone is not it's a great salary for someone who's recently graduated. That means that they should be able to earn six figures, hopefully within a couple of years. But then to be under that kind of mountain of debt um, is just so crippling. It's just so completely crippling. So let's just consider what the, the future looks like for someone like that. They're not able to go out and live on their own. They're not able to buy a house, uh, which for everyone out there who perhaps doesn't have student loans or is a little less than sympathetic um, to someone in this situation, you have to think that if you own a house and you want to sell that house, you need someone like this person that Tom was describing to buy your home. And if we have a bunch of people that are crippled by student loan debt, they're not going to be able to. Um, and so we just have all of these really huge knock on effects as a result. But it is a very unfortunate reality where you have to sit with your finances and say, you know, this maybe this university would have been the best place for me, would have been the best place for me to develop, to grow as a person, but also to get the best education I possibly can in the field that I want to go into but I can't afford it. And I think it's really sad that we're having people make that kind of decision where they can't get the education um, that they maybe want or that they need because frankly, it's too out of reach. Uh, education should not be something that people have to make a, a decision about. It, sh it should be something that all people can get. Again, you can join us. We'd love to hear your student loan story here where we live, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, with us again, Kristen Myers, Editor-in-Chief of The Balance, and Tom Martin, a Wealth Management Certified Professional and Financial Planner at Valark Financial Services. So Tom, when we talk about uh, financial literacy and thinking about future planning, you know, how are you advising clients? So say some of them will be, uh, be able to take a advantage of either the, you know, these loan forgiveness programs, the public service loan forgiveness, and how they should handle that discretionary income. Okay. Um, so what I tell people is we need to find, we, we need to find a school that's going to be compatible with our financial aid family type, right? Um, so for those that don't know, we either have um, a, a family that is very low need, high merit. So we're financially successful. We have a gifted student, um, or we have high merit, high need, it's maybe we're looking at an average income family or a lower income family, but also a gifted student. And we have a low merit, low need family where we have a family that might have an average student and um, very high income. And then the last quadrant is a low merit, high need family, which is a family that um, is less financially successful and um, also has a, you know, a, a lower academic student there. So depending on your family type, there's various strategies that you can use to figure out whether what, what it would take to maximize merit-based aid or uh, need-based aid out there. Um, and once we kind of figure out what those schools are, we need to figure out how much all four years of college are going to be, not just the first year, which everyone's like, okay, you know, we college is going to cost $65,000 this year. We have 25,000 and a 529. I'm sure we can kind of figure out the rest. Um, that's not what we say with our families. We need to figure out how much 
all four years are going to cost. We're going to need to figure out how much merit-based aid, how much need-based aid we're going to get. If we don't qualify for any need-based aid, that's okay. Let's throw that out the window. Let's focus on what matters. Let's go ahead and try to find these schools that um, meet um, some sort of non-need merit aid. Um, let's try to go out there and find merit scholarships because merit scholarships don't reduce merit-based aid. They will reduce need-based aid. We need to find the schools that have the endowments, the money to be able to pay for our student to go there. Maybe we need to invest in some test prep, maybe a little bit of financial planning, some tax planning there to help maneuver some of our finances around to, to uh, maximize that aid. And then once we kind of go through that, before the FAFSA starts coming out, which is usually October 1st every year, before that, maybe even a year or two before that, um, let's go ahead and start running a list of colleges that we think we, we might want to go to and apply this lens to these colleges, knock out the ones that are going to generate more student debt and keep the ones that will offer us merit-based aid and then go out and find more schools. And then when the FAFSA opens up, we're applying to schools that we know that would give us some sort of financial aid there to go to that school. That way, when March or April comes around and all these award letters start rolling in, we're not surprised. We're not because we didn't apply to schools that were not a good financial fit to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, these schools are um, going to give us financial aid out there. And if they don't, let's go back to them. Let's fill out an appeal letter and ask for more aid. They These colleges expect you to do the whole appeal process. So they reserve a good 20% of what they're going to be willing to give you. Um, so that's kind of where I would start there. And then also, Take a start inventorying your finances. How much do you have in 529 money? How much do you have in other investments or money that you can dedicate or earmark towards college? Talk to your parents. Are they involved? Because if your parents are opening up 529 accounts and UTMA accounts and UMA accounts at, at banks and you don't know about this, nothing knocks a, a student out of financial aid quicker than grandparent involvement. So in America, we have this issue where we can't talk to people about money, but I'm encouraging you reach out to them and say, hey, listen, if you have any inclination of, of helping, we just want to know because we're planning for financial aid and we don't want to get Johnny or Lucy knocked out of financial aid. You mentioned FAFSA uh, briefly, Tom, before we head to break. I understand there's going to be some changes on this form starting with the fall oh, yeah. uh, 2022. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, so all you need to do is look up the FAFSA Simplification Act. Um, this will be rolling around here in uh, academic year of uh, I think 2024. And what the what the big problem with FAFSA is right now, if we take a look at um, FAFSA submissions over the last uh, five ten years, it's just been declining year after year after year. Um, so people are not filling it out. Um, so what what we're what um, Department of Education is trying to do here is we're going to be reducing it from 100 questions down to 30 questions, make it a, as easy as possible. But also in the process, we're also knocking out financial questions that are going to help you get financial aid. We're, we're going to be losing things like the split EFC. So for families that have two kids that are going to be in college at the same year, uh, right now, if our expected family contribution is uh, $20,000 a, a year, well, if we have two kids in college right now, it'd be 10,000 for each student. So we would actually get more need-based aid from, from schools that way. With the removal of the split EFC, it's going to increase the amount per student. And it's also gonna lo lower any kind of, um, any money that they allow you to have and income um, kind of buffers there. Um, so you'll be assessed on assets pretty much on dollar one. 
So more people will be applying for college. More people are going to be generating debt. You're hearing Tom Martin, Wealth Management Certified Professional and Financial Planner at Vaylark Financial Services. We need more Toms uh, to help uh, families with uh, the student loan question and how to afford a uh, higher education. Tom's going to stay with us as well as Kristen Myers, Editor-in-Chief of The Balance, a personal finance website. We're going to take your calls and questions to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruby Lee. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Without student loan debt, how would you use your extra discretionary income? If you're a parent, we want to hear from you too. Are you starting to save for your children's education? Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, President Biden's loan forgiveness program will help parents to federal loans taken out by parents for their children's education, also called Parent Plus Loans, are eligible for cancellation, again, based on income. The Washington Post reports roughly 3.6 million borrowers hold Parent PLUS loans. My guest today, Kristen Myers, Editor-in-Chief of The Balance, a personal finance website, and Tom Martin, a wealth management certified professional and financial planner at Vaylark Financial Services, based in Hartford. You know, Tom, what, when we think about financial literacy, I'm wondering if you can talk more about what you're noticing about this next generation of borrowers um, when, you know, Gen Zs are now getting ready to, to go to college. Yeah. So Gen Z is a very interesting group. I find them to be very fascinating. They're very financially conscious. Um, they're, they're making decisions, especially around college, to try to avoid student loan debt in order to um, live their greatest life and they do have a focus on retirement and they want to retire early. Uh, Kristen, uh, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I agree with Tom. Gen Z is, is absolutely fascinating. We have seen this absolute democratization, I think, of, of access to personal finance or to financial literacy, but also in a way to the markets, right? We, we have this proliferation of robo-advisors, of apps, of commission-free trades, and we are seeing Gen Z taking advantage, honestly. And especially over the last two years of the pandemic, we've seen so many people really rush to the markets, but becoming very, very interested in money. And Gen Z now is in a lot of ways breaking the mold that we have all thought was the way, you know, to go to get to wealth, honestly. They're they're talking about retiring early, about having more access to time, about living their best lives at 22 and 23. Uh, I'll tell you, I never thought about living my best life at that age. I was just trying to <laughs> find a job and, and make it. Um me too. They're me very, too. <laughs> yeah, they're but they're very much having these kinds of conversations, you know, about boundaries in the workforce and how much money they, you know, are entitled to when they are when they do go for job applications. So it has absolutely been fascinating, and I think in a lot of ways some of these changes are are definitely great, um, and it and it makes me happy to see them, uh, some of these changes, but also some of the increased access and and knowledge and awareness 
of all things money or investing or personal finance and financial literacy. Because I tell you, when I went to college, just listening to Tom talk about that formula, right, about how you make the best financial decision to go to college, all I kept thinking was, I wish I had that conversation when I was 17. I wish me and my family thought of paying for college in that way. But we you don't know what you don't know. And so I hope that someone who is out there is listening to this right now is able to take advantage of some of the knowledge that he really just shared, or at least we'll go on and, and we'll start to do some research. Because again, I think so many families and so many people just don't have that information. Karina is calling in from New Haven. Karina, what's your question or comment? Oh, Karina, are you there? Uh, this is a different person. Okay, well, uh, I'm seeing Karina, but tell us your name and your question. Okay, my my name is Chris. Um, back in the day, uh, companies used to have a... Co- Chris, are you there? <laughs> Looks like we're having some problems with our uh, phone system. I am going to read off uh, what Karina's question was from New Haven. She wanted to know, uh, Tom... Wouldn't it be better to lower interest rates rather than the one-time $10,000 payment? She's speaking to the loan forgiveness program. Yeah, so we we need to think about this from two lenses. One, we have federal student loans, which uh, President Biden can possibly influence that um, to some degree. Um, And then we have private student loans, which are private companies, which... um, you know, might be a little harder to put them into a specific interest rate um, because interest rates are are based on creditworthiness. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're you're on the right track here, and the right track is that uh, this loan forgiveness program was not a uh, was not something that was passed through by Congress. This was something that was authorized through the Heroes Act, and because of that, it's tied into COVID, uh, COVID and the emergency associated with COVID. So there is going to be a deadline. So just like how student loan payments need to get into repayment at some point here, uh, so will this forgiveness expire. And when we take a look at the state of public service loan forgiveness today, I was just looking at um, the statistics this morning, there was almost a million applications for a federal student loan over the last year, and the rejection rate was 97.5%. So when we take a look at how this loan forgiveness program might work and the deadline that's associated with it, I have to almost um, think that a lot of people are going to not get the forgiveness, even though they're entitled to it, um, because it's just going to hit a cutoff date um, with the emergency. So um, if you do qualify for it, I wouldn't really rely on the automatic forgiveness side of it because, I mean, for the last couple of years, nobody has been really recertifying their income. And this is going to be based on your 2020 and 2021 uh, tax returns, so not your 2022. So it would be best to kind of take advantage of this sooner than later. But to get back to your question, um, yeah, I would like to see something a little bit more permanent with keeping interest rates down, allowing people to be able to pay down their student loan a little bit more um, aggressively on their own um, rather than rely on um, government um, subsidies or stimuluses to kind of help pay for this one-time thing. We're short on time. I'm going to paraphrase some of the calls that were coming in. Uh, Terry and Stanford wanted Tom uh, to talk a little bit more about what is the best way for grandparents to contribute to their grandchild's expenses, because you mentioned earlier that can also derail the aid process. Uh, just a couple of minutes, Tom. I would um, not have the um, the grandparents uh, send 
uh, checks to the kids. I would possibly even wait until the student has graduated and exhausted all their merit and need-based aid and then help them kind of pay down the student loans. Brian on Twitter asks, I only have $5,000 left on student loans, which seems like it will be forgiven, but now it's time to think about my kids. He wants to know, are 529 accounts still the preferred method for parents to save for their children? Tom? Yes. So you get a tax deduction for your contributions to the Connecticut Higher Education Trust or CHET. So you want to make sure that you're contributing to CHET and not just any kind of 529 there for the tax deductions. What you do with the money after year two, that's up to you. It's a performance-based issue after that. Mm. Uh, Kristen Myers, again, from The Balance. And I'm wondering if you can leave our listeners with some final thoughts, because as we can, we're going to see the application process for the loan forgiveness to roll out, certainly it doesn't help uh, deal with the larger issue of the cost of higher ed, uh, the fact that interest rates are, are high and people have bills to, play, um, to pay. So um, some final thoughts from you, Kristen. Oh, absolutely. Um, like, like we've been saying, this is really just the start um, and it needs to just be the start of, of college um, reformation or, or really reforming the college financing system. Um, as Tom was saying, you know, the goal is is not honestly to, to have the federal government just constantly forgive people's loans, but really to give people the tools uh, to be able to pay for the loans that they've already taken out. Um, but in order to do that, a couple of things need to happen, that the interest rates on some of these loans needs to be lowered. We have already seen a, a decrease in uh, the debt income, the debt-based income repayment. Um, that was lowered from 10% to 5%, making it a little bit easier for people to repay some of those loans. And so this really just needs to be, again, the start um, of a journey. Um, and when it comes to re reforming the college financing space, but if you are someone right now and you're listening to this conversation, I think what you really need to do is to sit down and have that conversation. And as Tom was calling it, take an inventory of your finances. If you're someone who has a child who's about to go to college, you need to start having these conversations. And if you are someone who graduated, has a degree and has some student loan debt, also take an inventory of your finances and set some of those financial goals and figure out how and where some of that student loan debt is going to play its role. And once you have that conversation with yourself, with your with your parents or even your grandparents, if they are able to help, I think then you're going to find that perhaps your situation might not be as scary, or at least you'll be able to create a strategy for yourself that's really going to improve your financial future. Kristen Myers, Editor-in-Chief of The Balance. Thank you. Also, Tom Martin, a Wealth Management Certified Professional and Financial Planner at Valark Financial Services in Hartford. Thank you for your time today. Uh, we appreciate uh, the, the comments we got from our listeners. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. We'll be back tomorrow.